and welcome back to Working Wife, Happy Life. I wanted to let you know that the next few months throughout the summer will likely have a more sporadic schedule of episode releases. Given everything going on in this world uh, with the COVID coaster, as someone recently called it, the necessary and inspiring action for social justice and general life handling kids with no school, full-time work, and off schedules, I will do my very best to produce as much content as possible, but please bear with me. I am so honored to have you listening to this podcast, so please make sure you're subscribed so you know when new episodes do launch. So yesterday was Father's Day. Personally, it was a rough one due to some external circumstances, some petty and annoying, and some were heavy and emotional. But however you honored the fathers in your life, whether you are a father, whether it's your own father, a father figure, the father of your children, your partner who hopes to be a father, or is struggling to become a father, whether it's single moms who also have to be fathers, stepfathers, if you're missing your father, I could go on and on. I do want to shout out to all the dads who are really in it. And you know what I mean by that. There's so many dads that did not have great role models in terms of fathering with love and compassion and caregiving. Many generations of defining masculinity as being devoid of emotion and always being tough and never doing the dirty work of childcare and household duties have damaged boys and men beyond words. So to those men who followed their hearts regardless of what society has told them to do and how to be, we are so grateful for you, for all that you do to make our worlds go round, and for the beautiful way that you are showing those around you, both young and old, what it truly means to be a man. A special shout out to the love of my life and the best father I could have ever chosen for my kids. We literally would be nothing without you. And also many thanks for editing and producing this podcast. (laughs) On today's episode, I had the literal and absolute joy of sitting down with Jenny Blake, who is the author of Pivot, The Next, The Only Move That Matters is Your Next One. Jenny set up her first website in 2005, turned it into a blog in 2007 while working full-time at Google. We did not know each other there. Then she went all in on her own business, despite the protests of her inner CFO, when her first book launched in 2011. She's been self-employed ever since as a solo pluspreneur, earning mid-six figures with a small team of four part-time employees. Her second book, Pivot, launched in 2016 and set the foundation for licensing and speaking work with companies and her passion project of coaching solopreneurs in her private momentum community. She also hosts a daily podcast. Daily! I can't even imagine. It's the Pivot Podcast where she connects with other heart-based authors and business owners on strategies for navigating change. Her motto is, if change is the only constant, let's get better at it. When I first met Jenny, our conversation was effortless, our connection was instant, and I felt so inspired and motivated after speaking with her. She's an incredibly generous, thoughtful, and articulate person without an ounce of fluff in what she believes and how she navigates her life in support of others. Take a listen and enjoy. Be ready to take notes and maybe even listen again as this one is chock full. Enjoy my conversation with the incredible Jenny Blake. Awesome. Well, listen, Jenny, I feel like I have kind of fangirled and heard your name and heard about your work through so many different channels across my network at Google where you used to work. And I am so thrilled that we have had the chance to connect and just kind of instantly uh, hit it off. I don't know if you do that with everyone, but I really felt a kindred spirit with you. So thank you for uh, joining us today on Working Wife, Happy Life and for all the work that you do. Thank you so much, Bethany. Right back at you. I felt the exact same way. And what you're doing in the world is so incredibly important. I just jumped for joy when the first person made an email introduction because there is just not very much out there on this subject. And I love the title of your podcast, Working Wife, Happy Life. It's so good. Thank you for spreading the messages that you do and doing the work that you do. It's an inspiration and we need more of it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's funny. I do get a lot of feedback on 
the the title. Some people will be like, some guests are like, well, I'm not a wife or I'm not working. Um, and, you know, I'm like, no, 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 this is about me because I have been told that I can't be happy in this role based on all of the research and all of the op-eds that have been out there about this topic. And I just never wanted that life for myself. And I don't want that life for others because there are so many uh, working women and in particular breadwinning women who, um, you know, kind of feel like they are in a role that they shouldn't or couldn't be happy in. And I disagree. I am with you completely. And one of the biggest shifts that I had to kind of reconcile this because I grew up with a lot of fear around money. My parents got divorced when I was five. My mom worked full time, often two jobs at a time to support us. So I grew up kind of obsessed with money as a form mm. of security in life. And it was very strange to find myself in the pattern of a relationship where I was the breadwinner and the earner. And one of the biggest shifts I had was realizing I love working and I love business. I love entrepreneurship. I work from a deep sense of purpose and contribution. And it was so empowering the day that I realized, oh, I'm not working because I have to, because this role has been foisted onto my shoulders or like Atlas carrying the big globe. I would work no matter what. And I derive a lot of joy and satisfaction and excitement from the work that I do. So that really helped me separate it from the relationship aspects of it yeah. and, and the value and just, and, and to know that actually my work is something I feel so connected to no matter my relationship status, which is also quite empowering. Yeah, it's, it's true because I mean, the two are so interwoven, right? Your, your, your happiness at home and your happiness at, with your work. Um, but it's interesting that you say too, that like, you know, once you realize that this is about kind of getting a control over the emotion of money, um, and regardless of whether you grew up with too much or too little or just enough, um, we all have a different emotional connection to to money and what it means for us. And it's particularly interesting, I think, when you couple it, like you said, with the responsibility of being the primary earner, um, fortunately, the ability to love what you do. Um, but then that there is, you know, kind of, it is an extra... I don't want to use the word burden, but it is an extra consideration and responsibility that you have for your household as the breadwinner um, that is different than I think what many of us were raised with in terms of expectations. Did you have to struggle kind of around that expectation as well? Both my own and my family. I think my mom and grandma, you know, being protective hardworking women that they are, even though my grandmother, she actually for her generation had quite a few jobs off and on, but my grandfather was always the breadwinner of their unit. But I think they both were like, why can't you meet a Googler? Why aren't you with some stable, you know, <laughs> guy earning mid six figures or who even knows what? And instead I married an artist. Um, my dad's also an architect and an artist has that kind of just freedom loving personality. And I think they're scratching their heads a little bit like, oh no, this again, <laughs> you know, but interesting. But so for me, it was also reconciling the expectations of others and, and trying to detach. Um, yeah, just there, there's so many stories that we have around all of this in society and our worth. And, and even if as the women in the relationship, even if we reconcile it, there's all the work that the man does, you know, mm -hmm. and my husband was one of the first men that I ever dated that said to me early on in our relationship, your success turns me on. I oh, I love never, that. I had never heard anybody say that. They only ever were intimidated or people would tell me you're too intimidating for men or the men would somehow cut me down even on accident, like a good thing mm -hmm. would happen and they would make some underhanded remark or comment or brag about something they had done just to kind of meet the moment. It was really weird. Yeah. So I always had these very awkward relationships. And one of the things I love most about my husband is that he generally, even though he goes through his own ups and downs, is like, go, go, go. You know, I'm here to support you. I'm here to lift you up. And there's just one other thing I wanted to add to what you said, which is I didn't realize how much of an invisible responsibility being a breadwinner is because mm. it's it, you don't always see it. But for me as a breadwinner and a business owner, it's a heavy load 
And as yeah. I mentioned to you in our email, when the pandemic hit, it's actually that all my worst fears have come true. Like the pressure of being a breadwinner, having a mortgage, supporting a family. We don't have kids, but we have a dog and there's two of us and in New York City, nonetheless. I can't believe it. And then all my work got canceled and into the future. And so here it is, this, this scenario I had tried to prevent in a way my whole life and it's here. And although there have been moments of scariness and I have had to admit that invisible responsibility of this time, it's still okay. We're still here. Yeah. We're still moving and we're cooperating more than, more than ever. That's so, that is so fascinating. And I can still, I can, we're not using our video. Um, and I can hear the smile in your voice as you speak through this. And I feel like that is quite an existential moment actually of, oh my God, you know, you, you have these uh, trainings and maybe in part of the work that you do where it's like, all right, well, what's the worst that can happen? Well, for you, the worst just happened. (laughs) Okay. Still standing. Yes. I love that you picked up on the smile because, oh my gosh, it's so freeing. Like again, these double B roles, like B squared, Mm -hmm. breadwinner business owner. It's like, oh my God, there's this huge freedom that the worst case scenario is happening. It is here. And yes, there were moments where I was just completely maxed out and I really was feeling the pressure, but it's also sparked a lot of creative thinking for me and, and a lot of reflection. So it is quite freeing to realize that that big, scary monster was more of what the Buddhist or maybe it's Dallas, I don't know, would call paper tiger, something that looks really scary and big and shadowy on the wall and you get up close and it's, it's okay. I'm not saying this situation yeah. that we're in is good for anybody. And I'm certainly can't even tell you where my income's coming from two months from now. I mean, a portion of it, but not nearly what it was before. And yet it's okay. It's, it's yeah. the reality that we live in is truly that process of surrender and acceptance. And I think that goes for the relationship, the business life. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, it's, it's obviously, Thanks to the foundation of all the work that you have done. Um, and just to to share some of that background, um, you have tremendous expertise in career development and kind of supporting entrepreneurs. You have a method called the pivot method. Um, and, and I believe that it's probably all of those tenets of what you uh, promote and what you drive people toward that you were able to employ yourself. Can you share a little bit about uh, both the work and the foundation that you have, the the, the method and the uh, efforts that you drive and the business that you run, as well as what were the things that you really both leaned on for yourself in those moments of really, you know, fear and and needing to to pivot and reconsider as well as the the moments that you felt like, oh, there's things I didn't employ that I kind of should have taken my own medicine. Sure. A little bit on my professional background. So we never overlapped at Google, but I was there from 2006 mm-hmm. to 2011 over in California. And I did work in training and career development. Before that, I worked at a startup for two years, born and raised Silicon Valley. And I, I kept hitting these plateaus even within Google what I would now call pivot points. And I always Mm. felt like a crisis. It just felt like I was one of those entitled millennials that the media keeps ragging on that. If I can't be happy at Google, I can't be happy anywhere. When my first book came out life after college in 2011, that's when I moved to New York city, gave myself six months to make it. Didn't really identify myself as very entrepreneurial. I actually thought I was more of a, I was a straight A student. I was a good team player. I always got coaches award. I was never the MVP. I just got coaches Mm -hmm. award. Like I tried hard in high school (laughs) and yet it was so freeing to go out on my own. And actually Google, I always had like 20 OKRs at any given time, That's objectives and key results. And as soon as I left, it was just one OKR, pay the rent. You know, Mm. I had all day, every day, all week to just work on this one goal of course, in service of my broader mission of being as helpful as possible to as many people as possible. And I also noticed so much fear when I was leaving Google around, what if I end up in a van down by the river, back to this money and security obsession. So I started to make myself ask, what if I earn twice as much in half the time? And then in recent years, I've added with joy and ease while serving the highest good. So now Mm. whenever I feel myself dipping into fear, even during a pandemic, oh my God, the sky is falling. What if I lose everything, the business, the house, and so on? And I say, oh, and what if I earn twice as much in half the time 
with joy and ease while serving the highest good? Or what if there's a nonlinear breakthrough right around the corner? I mean, even how you and I met Bethany is just serendipity and synchronicity at, at its finest. Mm-hmm. So now in the nine years after I left Google, I've been running my own consulting business in New York City and Google's still one of my clients to this day. I don't know if you know this, but they actually rolled out Pivot as the global career development framework. I do know that. Yeah. That's how I first heard your name. And I was like, who is this woman? <laughs> so, it's such a testament. I, I didn't know if Google was going to completely disown me once I left, like be mad at me as disloyal. And it's been the exact opposite. And the most mm-hmm. joyful engagements that I have are always when I get to go back to Google. And yeah, and then that's all. Awesome. Yeah. And Pivot came out in 2016. And here we are in 2020. It is literally like the year of Pivot. I hear it every day all over the news. So it's fun. It's been fun and crazy observing this whole time. I read this fantastic quote about you and, you know, you seem so driven, but you're also relaxed about it. And the quote said that you take the overwhelm out of life. Uh, and I love that because you really exude that that uh, aspect of how you approach life, how you work with others, and would love to hear what are some of the key reminders that you have for yourself to maintain that. Well, thank you for finding that comment. I don't even know where, but that's really kind and and sweet. It means a lot. Yeah, I think that, well, for me, I hit burnout so many times, probably even pre-Google, but I came aware of it while working at Google. I became aware of it when I left Google. I had a hyperthyroid condition for the exact five years that I worked at Google. And then Mm. when I left, it magically healed without medicine. Can I say that the two are correlated or just, you know, if one is a causal effect, I don't know. But the bottom line is that for me, I just could not and cannot to this day work at the pace that I used to. I mean, even as a kid, I was always busy going from one activity to the next. I think that was my form of childcare. It was just like (laughs) stack activities after school and that will keep me busy until 6 p.m. And so as an adult and now as a business owner, I really try, as you said, to reduce overwhelm, both by solving problems or stressors for me. I like to simplify them and then share what I've learned. That's just something that I love to do because it feels so redemptive to struggle with something and go through it the long, hard way, and then be able to somehow offer people a shortcut when they go go next. So the whole notion of pivot my mantra for the book, my motto is if change is the only constant, let's get better at it. If the mm-hmm. pace of change in our the nature of our work is accelerating, then why does it need to feel like a crisis every single time? There has got to be a way to get better at it. Yeah. And I, I also borrow from the agile development line, each time you repeat a task, take one step toward automating it. That is, maybe sounds simple, but it's been so helpful in my life. And so if I can help people reduce the clutter of their day-to-day so that they can work with joy and ease. I really believe that our work and our careers will be more sustainable. And also that the DNA of how we work is baked into whatever products we're creating. So if I if I bake you a cake with stress and burnout, how good is the cake going to taste versus... <laughs> I've been eating that cake for months. Yeah. And and it's like, but, but if I bake with joy and ease and delight and fun, as weird as that sounds, because our culture does not attach those labels to work, Mm -hmm. how much better will the product taste? It like, it will just, even if it's unseen energy in the final result or in the business or in how you go about the day. So another one of my mantras is let it be easy. Let it be fun. If things ever start feeling too hard and too stressful, I just look at it as a systems problem. Yeah. That's such an interesting way to piecemeal it out. And I think particularly when you talk about, you use the term solopreneurs, and I interpret that to mean, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of people who are going after a, their own creative mission, right? They're starting their own their own thing, their own business, their own uh, intention. And that in and of itself is a very emotional plight, right? It's very much part of what you believe you were put on this earth to do, um, speaking from my own experience. And so when you look at doing something that is so important and so emotionally charged, looking at it from a systems and process angle can actually feel dry, 
right? It can actually feel like, oh, this isn't, it, this isn't fun, but it, you're saying it can actually add to the fun because it's actually <laughs> adding to the ease. Well, I mean, people make fun of me for all the spreadsheets I've created in life, <laughs> even at Google since I left. I love systems. They are fun to me because it's just problem solving. And mm -hmm. I love that challenge. To add to what you, how you describe solopreneurs, I think of myself as a solo pluspreneur. And I also define it as deliberately staying small and agile in terms of how the business is run, which mm -hmm. has nothing to do with top line revenue, by the way. So I also don't want to hold the belief that just because I'm a solopreneur, I'm limited in my income. I actually am constantly looking at how can I run a really lean operation and still work toward, let's say, seven figure of gross revenue for the business. And I enjoy that creative challenge because I, even when I was at Google, I worked many layers down the ladder from Sheryl Sandberg. And I remember looking up to her. We all looked forward to her all hands meetings. Couldn't wait what she was going to say and yeah. how she delivered. But I never wanted to be her. And I never wanted to be climbing the ranks. And, and I, I, for me, being a manager was in my zone of excellence or zone of competence to borrow Gay Hendricks rubric, but it wasn't my zone of genius. Where So even the team I have now, it's two to three part-time team members at any given time. Mm -hmm. And I'm the only full-time employee. And I joke that I don't even work full-time in my business. I work 20 to 30 hours a week because I think that's a more sane way to work. And I just think that a lot of organizations are too afraid to pull back from 40, 50, 60 hours but in fact, wouldn't we all be better rested and less stressed? And I don't know if that's been the case, if people have been able to reduce work hours, some by choice, I guess, some by circumstance of having kids at home. Yeah. But I think it's more humane to work fewer hours. I Well, I totally agree. It just seems so counterintuitive to what I've heard anybody else say about entrepreneurship. There's more this message out there that you have to live and breathe this stuff in a way that does become unsustainable, particularly if it's a side hustle, right? And 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 this idea of if you're in it, and I don't know where this comes from. Maybe it's in the tech world where, you know, you see, I think Jack Dorsey put out at some point that he worked 12 hours at Twitter and 12 hours at Square. It's like, well, wait, when do you, when do you sleep, eat, and, and exercise and see family and friends? You know, it's like we put out this message that there should be this 24-hour cycle. How have you actually achieved kind of bringing yourself off that ledge from working as hard as you did at Google to finding that same success with, you know, almost less I guess it's not less effort, it's less output? Less time for time's sake. So, mm. and very strategic effort, strategic output, and strategic focus, I would say. Also, again, I just can't work at that pace anymore. Mm -hmm. So I need it. I, I need to read for two hours in the morning before I start. I know it sounds, maybe it sounds entitled or lazy, or I don't know what, but I'm a better, happier, more productive, more focused person when I work five straight hours in the middle of the day, and that's it. And I don't really stop for lunch. I just, I would rather get to my desk at 10 a.m. and leave at three. I don't know how many, I'm not going to count. <laughs> lunch is all one, two, three, five hours. <laughs> I would rather do that than fiddle around or get distracted or go to meetings. Another thing I do is time blocking. So I don't have any meetings on Mondays and Fridays. I don't have mm. any phone calls usually before 10 a.m. Rare, rarely I will have that. And this is all, I created a free course called Free Up Founder Time. So just in case anybody wants to really dive into all these systems, it's at pivotmethod.com slash founder time. So another thing is I'm not good at email. I'm notoriously slow at email and that's by choice because email is such a reactive process yeah. that I like to get to my desk and for the first hour of the day, I do the most important, most strategic task. And Todd Herman has a rubric, which he talks about $10 tasks, $100 tasks, $1,000 tasks, and $10,000 tasks. And I'm always trying to find what's the next $10,000 task in my business that if I create this pivot programs sales PDF, that could lead to a six-figure licensing contract. I'm always looking for that, those mm. key le levers. Or right now I'm doing a daily podcast. I mean, that takes a ton of time, but it's very no, joyful for me. 
I so, can't even imagine. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So on that, and that's been a fun challenge because it's all about refining the systems and, and I just draw boundaries and I do not subscribe to those stories. I'm so glad you shared the examples that you did. We have so many opportunities in life, in business, in breadwinning relationships to rewrite the story. It needs to be rewritten. It is out of date. And so I kind of delight in saying, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, we need to work a hundred hour week in order to be successful. I'll show you, I'll prove differently. And I look yeah. forward to the challenge of that. I look forward to running. You know, I, my aim is a seven figure business in 20 hours a week. And I'm just going to hold the belief that it's possible. And at least I give myself a chance. Whereas if I say, oh, the only way to get there is the grind and hard, laborious work, then of course that's what it's going to take because it's the only story. It's the only option that I'm even giving myself. Right. And it's a kind of like what you, we were flipping on its head, what we were talking about earlier with, you know, what's the worst that could happen? It's what's the best that can happen. Let me reframe this and kind of re-put the story out. And as I'm, as I'm thinking about this, I think Jack Dorsey said he works eight hours at Square and eight hours at Twitter, which once again is a 16 hour day regardless. It still doesn't make sense. Um, but it's it's one of those things where I feel like it's, you know, we just need to rethink. And what I love about your approach is that you just unabashedly draw these boundaries and decide what is working for you and approach it in that way. And that's led to success. So the idea of, you know, a lot of us will sit down at our emails, um, myself included, first thing in the morning and knock out the, you know, whatever you call them, the $10 once, right? Just these are easy. I can get them off my plate. I can feel accomplished. And you're actually deriving accomplishment from tackling, you know, the the biggest chunk first, the biggest area of ROI or potentially the biggest area of creative output. Is that a fair assessment? Definitely. And there's there's something else that comes up that's kind of a shift in topic, but related to what you're saying in terms of energy expenditure. And this relates to the breadwinner topic. Another one of my biggest ahas around all this was that I could spend my energy worrying about my partner and how much he was earning and getting on him about, because in the early days we hadn't worked it out yet that Mm -hmm. it was all going to be me, you know? So I kept having these expectations and you know what they say, expectations are resentments and waiting. And I realized- (laughs) I haven't haven't heard that before, but it's perfectly put. And I kept getting like, the first of the month would roll around and I would get disappointed and oh my God, it was awful. And then I realized, oh, if I put all of that mental energy into creative solutions within my own business, my earning power is 10x, 20x what it would be if I focused that energy on trying to get another person, like trying to make a cat park, you know, or a fish climb a tree, whatever Byron Katie, these examples she uses. And even Byron Katie, one of her kind of famous lines is if if you're thinking about another person and they're in their business and you're in their business, then nobody's home for yours. And that could Mm -hmm. mean business in a work sense, or it could just mean the business of their life. So if they're in their head and you're in their head, there's nobody home for you. And that's what I kept doing. And so I, I got so much of my energy back when I just said, wow, I actually am not going to spend any time looking over at another person's paper, even if they're in the same house. I am going to put all of that focus into my own business where I'm so much more directly able to create things, which going back to how we started is what I love. So Mm -hmm. that was very freeing for me as well. And also it's, it's get back, it gets back to respecting that particularly in a partnership, we're just all in these individual journeys, right? Like we're all on our own journey on this earth and we find people along the way that match our our goals or our values and they come along and we create a journey together, but we're still very much individuals. You know, my husband and I have obviously a full and lovely life together with our children and our family and our home, but we have extremely different uh, hobbies and interests and even our social networks are very different in terms of, you know, obviously we have a lot of mutual friends, but in terms of whom we gravitate toward and who we spend time with when we're not in lockdown, um, those types of things. And and I love that we each have our own journey and we each have our own strengths because 
it's so much more interesting, right? As long as as long as we're aligned on the parts that we're in together, I think there's a lot of freedom that comes from respecting which which journey you're on and which is yours to influence. Absolutely. And also, I also thought about it about if the tables were turned and if somebody were judging me based on how much I was earning, oh my God. I'd be yeah. gone. <laughs> Whether they yeah. were like, you're earning too much, you're earning too little. Like one comment about the level of my earnings and I'd be out. Yeah. So I realized what right do I have then to do that it's to the other person? And I love what you said too, of like, you get aligned on the, and you, you find, and I think it, take, it does take work because we, we are rewriting society's rules around all this or at least yep. the norms. So it, it does take more work, I think, in the beginning. And then after that, it can be so freeing. I think that's what it is, right? It's it's, And it can be tiring to be the one um, doing the work. And, and I always look at the generations of, you know, feminists ahead and those who have, you know, fought for our right to vote and all different, you know, laws and rights that we have. And you just realize that it's, it, it's maybe less comfortable to be the one that's starting these conversations, but you're actually just building on, you know, a, a wheel of evolution that we all have a part in. And I, I, I feel like you're a kindred spirit in the ways of having these very big lofty ideals, but then breaking them down into ways that you feel like you can individually contribute and, and make it part of your day. Yes. And just, it's like the big lofty ideals. I tried them on. And they just never worked. It's like, I just, it never worked. I didn't even think I would ever get married. I was so convinced. I was like, you know what? There's no rule book that says the day you're born, you're guaranteed to get married. You're guaranteed to find the one that created so much stress in my life. Just trying Mm -hmm. to find the one. And so all these, these ideals, like what I'm saying comes from having tried the other way and it doesn't work. Or yeah. it didn't work for me, or it didn't, it isn't how my particular life unfolded. And Byron Katie's work has truly been so helpful of loving what is to just accept that. And then, and then it does take some courage to say what, what you're doing, Bethany. And what I'm trying to do too, is to say, oh, this is different than what I grew up with or what I see around me. And, but it's okay. And if anything, I can make it even better and yeah. find the light, find this, the, the, and, and help and help others, you know, like as, as you mentioned, doing this right. kind of work. Yeah, that's the that's the first step of it. And I think there's, you know, moments of doubt. And in fact, you caught me in one when we had our first call. Um, I can't remember which month it was, but they're all a blur now. But it was at the beginning of um, the the pandemic here and particularly in New York. And you know, even with this podcast, I had started it in January. The whole thing kind of fell into my lap. Even the studio we were using, the wonderful newsstand studios in Rockefeller Center, shout out to the team there. Um, Everything really fell into place and it seemed like such a no-brainer to make this work. And then the pandemic hit and all of a sudden, you know, you couldn't go anywhere in New York and you couldn't be out and you couldn't be with other people. And I had this total moment of you know, kind of like the opposite pivot, the pivot of like kind of retreating into yourself and thinking, you know, that doubt of, well, why am I the person to do this? Or, you know, was this really important at all? Or was this making a difference? And I was so focused on kind of the outside part of it. And what you helped me with was, I mean, you're just so encouraging of like, no, this is really important work and it's important to you and you will figure this out. And here are some ways to not get overwhelmed by it. And it was one conversation. I don't know if you even remember it as vividly as I do that really helped me recognize that like, okay, this is, this is just going to look different. That's all. It's not what I thought it was going to be. And that's, you know, like I said before, when you have these creative pushes, and particularly when you're talking, uh, you know, about coaching and, and helping people uh, through entrepreneurship, there's a lot of self doubt that can creep in there. Um, and I think why your work is so important is because you exude what you shared with me personally of that, like you can do this. Let's take it into bite size and not let it derail you from what is so important, what your purpose is. Well, hallelujah. I'm so glad that that was a 
a pivotal conversation for you because you are truly creating what I wish I had four Mm. four years ago and what I wish I had the courage to create. And I just commend you for doing it. And I'm so glad you're back on track, even if the circumstances are a little different. And I just love what you said about you have to start with these baby steps. And when we get knocked on our ass, like we all did, we all got pivoted from this pandemic. It's the small steps. And just taking those steps in faith and not really knowing, you can't know how it's going to be podcasting from home. We were both warning each other before we hit record, might be a dog barking in the background and a siren and a jackhammer and that's life in New York, you know? Yep. (laughs) So what, tell me a little bit about, because you just seem so wise in this arena and so able to kind of listen to your instincts and um, you know, kind of knowing when your truth is telling you to do something different or go in a different way. How did you build that? Like, is that something that you always inherently had? Is that something you worked through in, in childhood? Were you self-assured? Like, tell oh, me no. a little bit more. No, no. I was, <laughs> I mean, I really appreciate you saying that. I, during the time I was working at Google, I wrote a blog post called 10,000 Hours of Neuroses. That I felt that if I had mastered one thing in my life, it was being neurotic, being a people pleaser, a perfectionist, a worrier. I just had so much anxiety, burnout. I mean, all the things. (laughs) It was just kind of miserable, honestly. And it was about two years in after I left Google where there was a day I was just, I had cried every day. I call 2013 my apocalypse year. I cried every single day that year. It just started with a breakup on January 1st and it never let up. Oh, geez. Yeah, it never let up. Every Anything that could go wrong, any relationship that could have been burned to the ground or exploded in a fiery ball of flames did. And toward the very end of the year, I just thought to myself, like, I'm too sensitive for this. I just cannot handle living like this. And somehow around the same time, I discovered Tosha Silver's work and her book, Outrageous Openness. And that Mm. book is all about surrender. And I had been studying Buddhism for 10 years at that point. And I had been reading personal development books since I was 20 years old. I mean, I was trying to self-help myself (laughs) for a decade. But that book and that moment had me just kind of break and say, this is too hard on my own. And I would even say I was like hardcore atheist uh, for that same difficult period. And then in the last five, six, seven years, I don't even know how long anymore. Yeah. Seven have been, um, very spiritual, not under any one religious umbrella or organization, if anything, Buddhist or Taoist combination, but, um, very spiritual. And, and as you said, Bethany, I make a point to build the skill of intuition and listening. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's a skill like anything else. And it first requires the desire to grow that skill, it requires honoring that intuition is data, just like the rest of the data that we bow to in our society, like the cold, hard facts and numbers and metrics. And, and then it's also the invitation and the curiosity to say, for any given decision, large or small, what does my gut say? What am I mm-hmm. noticing? How do mm-hmm. I feel? Does this activity or person give me energy or do they drain my energy? And just all of these inquiries on a daily basis have helped me so much. And now I I completely run my life and business on intuition, which is why I'm so happy that you brought that up as a topic to discuss, because I think that's another misconception in the business and entrepreneurship world is, yeah, it's all about the numbers. More, 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 bigger, bigger, bigger. Got to set quarterly targets and track your metrics. And it's all left brain. When in fact, there are so many secrets to how you can run a joyful business or career with things like surrender, generosity, authenticity, transparency, synchronicity, you know, all these fun things that if we just pay attention to them, they're always there. It's just, they don't, it's like the volume's turned all the way down and it does take some intention to turn the volume back up. Yeah. I think you're touching on so much there that is so admirable in that you know, there's this, there's a lot of people in a space of talking about mindfulness and talking about pausing and talking about listening to your kind of inner guide. And sometimes it comes off as very frou-frou or it comes off as, 
you know, well, what a luxury to be able to do that. Um, and it's in a way that, you know, there's a lot of, look, there's a lot of women in particular with this pandemic that are being more negatively affected than men, whether it's from a career perspective or the extra drains on them at home and, you know, hearing, you know, to take a pause, to listen to your gut, to, you know, have more mindfulness can be a real challenge for a lot of women to say, well, great, but that's not going to work for me. I don't even have a moment to myself that somebody's not knocking on the bathroom door. Um, how do you, like, if you had, <laughs> asking for a friend, <laughs> if you had somebody who came to you as a coach in that sort of space, because you have such a pragmatic approach, what would be some tips about how they could kind of get themselves into that mindset or get themselves into that space in a way that is not necessarily, you know, start a meditation practice. Yeah, or... I know. How sick is everybody hearing that? <laughs> like, it's so, it's and, so hard. I'm like, and, I just, I can't even, I don't even know where I would do it that I wouldn't be interrupted. But, um, well, it's a, that's like my apocalypse here. I, I joked, I even gave a speech during that year where I said, believe me, I have done daily meditation, stop drinking alcohol. I was journaling. I was going for walks every day. I was doing a gratitude practice and none of it effing worked. Mm -hmm. And I was like, none of that worked. Don't anybody tell me to do another gratitude list. You know, like I was just so angry. None of it was working. And first of all, that's part of what sparked pivot because I felt this real passion to say, there's a certain point where all that stuff, you can try all the things, self-care, capital S, capital C, and it just still you're pulling your hair out. And yeah. I, I would, I cannot even imagine. I watched my sister-in-law who has a four-year-old and a two-year-old and she works in my brother. They have kind of a side business, but she's not employed full-time the way many women like you are, Bethany. I can't even imagine what this time has been like. And I wouldn't yeah. dare to say how to navigate that. I just bow to all of you with admiration. And I just think it's hard because there have been so many books like Drop the Ball, Do Less, uh, mm -hmm. Tiffany Dufu, Kate Northrup. So let's say with just how the house, it's like a disaster. And okay, I'm trying to drop the ball. So I, I, I don't say anything for a week of clutter everywhere. And it's driving me crazy. And I'm contributing to it, but I'm so defeated and I'm so tired. And I'm like, don't want to tidy. And I don't want to be that person that's like running around tidying constantly. Uh, and doing uh, 10 laps around everybody else just because I want the house clean. At the same time, sometimes I'll reach a point where I just snap. I'm like, I can't live like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and it's this tricky balance because I think, yeah, there's a certain amount of dropping the ball and letting go. And then there's like a part of you that wants to honor the desire for like a beautiful space or part right. of me. I'll say part of me that, that actually has a value around tidiness and a soothing environment actually de-stresses me when I come out of my office. So mm -hmm. I do think it's some combination of dropping what we can, clarifying what is important without exploding, and then a collective problem solving with other members of the house around, all right, tidying seems like this big chore that nobody wants to do. Is there some smaller if this, then that we can do like for a week, can we practice not dropping clothes onto the floor by the front door? You know, like some silly thing that might make a big difference. <laughs> yeah. And that's all that I can ever do. I don't know if any of us has this figured out. And I think for me, I had a big split in my consciousness. Like I thought I was this like single, I don't know. I lived alone for almost 10 years of my life. And now being married, having a dog, like there is more chaos around. I don't even have kids. And I think it's just reconciling, oh, that part of me where my heart's desire is just aloneness and solitude is also, there's a part of me that appreciates all the love and chaos and delightful uh, additions to the family. And and I'm, I'm grateful for both. And I just somehow have to try to 
honor both and it's not easy and you're the ninja at this so I think you should tell us what you've what you figured out Bethany yeah it's it's you know it's one of everything you're saying resonates particularly the tidiness with the house because my husband and I are actually both equally tidy but my children it's like there's fucking raccoons living in my house I mean it's just like it's they're and they're not incapable like they're not little they're eight and almost 13 I'm just like I, I mean you see this right you see the dirt you feel the sand you see that you went into the bathroom I just cleaned and destroyed it like you're in a college dorm. Like, it, and it gets me so angry because I am very much a person who is driven by lists and like crossing things off the totally. list and driving an accomplishment. I've talked on this podcast before, so apologies to the listeners for this piece again, but I am obsessed with laundry. I do not like having dirty clothes in the house. I probably run two to three loads a day, which I'm sorry for my usage of water, but I love it because it is a sense of accomplishment each and every day and I can fold it nice and pretty and I can put it away and I've done it. And it is such a gratifying process for me. And it's also mindless. It's in a weird way. It's my meditation just because I, I, I know what to do and I know how to do it and I know it's going to get done. And so there's, there's like, you know, I, I don't know how to find the things that, you know, are important to you. Find the moments, even when you do freak out, because I definitely have, I'm Italian by ancestry and I have a temper and I really like can lose my shit on my kids and I don't care about scarring them by yelling at them. I feel like I'm training them to just be better people, um, but also to understand that people have mood swings. <laughs> Very true. I I say I'm sorry a lot. um, And I explain, you know, I, I, like I said, just yelled at my son for destroying the bathroom and then felt really bad. And he went to his room and slammed the door. I was like, you know, just mommy's in a mood. I'm like, look, I'm sorry. I actually had insomnia last night and I didn't get a good night's sleep. And there's some really disturbing news of what's happening in Minneapolis right now. And all of that is weighing on me. So yeah, when I see you destroy the bathroom that I just spent a half an hour cleaning, it's really going to piss me off. It's not about the bathroom. It's about a lack of respect. It's about a lack of of pride, you know? And like, so I, in a way, I think because I'm so communicative, you know, maybe sometimes to a fault, I kind of let it all out so that everyone knows. That's the benefit of being Italian. Yes. (laughs) Everyone knows very clearly where they stand with me, whether they like it or not. Um, But it's, you know, I do have those moments, you know, look, I have dropped the ball on my nightstand. I have all the self-help books under my, um, my, you know, next to my bed that I sometimes read, sometimes devour, sometimes pause on, but I am not as calm and mindful as I'd like to be. And so I I guess there's a way that I need to kind of forgive myself on that growth of like, I'm still not where I need to be. I'm, I'm candid, I'm open, I'm communicative, um, but I'm not you know, I, I guess I'm just not exactly where I want to be yet. That's my work. Yeah, I can so relate. And this is where I think, oh my gosh. I mean, you've had so many podcasts about the household. It's like the final <laughs> frontier of the breadwinning woman relationship because we can get our work figured out. We can get a lot of the big stuff, big pieces figured out. And then it's like death by a thousand cuts of a dirty house, you know, or whatever, like mm-hmm. the last thing that and, and, you know, of course, everyone would say, well, hire a house cleaner. Yeah, we did pre-pandemic. But even then, I would have wanted someone coming daily, you know, in order to get the house where I would really like it. Totally. And I heard was it might have even been on your podcast. Maybe it was somewhere else where they said, oh, was it in a New York Times article? The one, a one, oh, okay. Here it is. It's a man who coaches other men to say, like, why not doing the dishes led to my divorce? And he now coaches women, um, coaches men in relationships that how important actually household things are. And one woman counted and she's like, I pick up after my husband 50 to 100 times a day. That's 100 pieces of work that he has just put onto my plate that that I didn't do. And and yeah. I get her anger and frustration because 
okay, if you drop the ball, you're looking at a messy home and maybe that's stressful. And then if you go pick up a hundred things, you ultimately get frustrated that you've gone and done this extra work. So the only thing I can say that has worked for me recently is dropping the ball like six days a week and just saying, whatever, trying to just not even see it. Like I don't see the mess. I just don't see it. And then why I love podcasting and your podcast is like, I'll go find an amazing podcast conversation. And on a day where I wake up very early before everyone else, I just try to find the soothing aspects. And I do just like you with the laundry psychologically, I just feel so much better when I can look and the light bounces off the surfaces and there's nothing piled. And so every now and then I will take it on, but I try not to do it all day, every day. I do it like once a week in a joyful mood with some coffee or some music and try to make it enjoyable during the process and focus on the aspects that I do like about it, which is, wow, isn't this fun? Look how rewarding every next surface is creating my own peace of mind. Yeah, you still have to have the conversations, but at least it takes some of the pressure off the constant feeling of frustration and what could be resentment. And and like you're saying too, to control the mounting resentment, to find a way that's like, okay, I'm not in the right space for this right now. So I'm not going to get upset about it. I'm not going to give it my energy. I'm going to give it my energy when I can be more productive about it. And, And I think those are kind of the boundaries that we need to set for ourselves. And, you know, particularly the breadwinning women's kind of law in life is, is really, I mean, the statistics are staggering about how much more unpaid labor is going on within the home um, for women and particularly for breadwinning women, where it's almost like men and women are playing out these gender roles where breadwinning women actually do more of the household logistics and the more money she makes and the more financially dependent her uh, heterosexual partner is on her, the less housework he'll do. And that's where we come to like kind of unlearning some of these behaviors. And I try to be very intentional with my children too about you know, when it comes to chores, there's just different capabilities because of age, right? So my daughter really loves, you know, like dusting. She's very good at wiping things. She's eight and she's, you know, that, that piece makes sense to her. Do I want her to take out a huge bag of recyclables with like breakable wine and tequila bottles in it? Like, no, I'll probably ask her brother to do that because it's heavy and I don't want to pick up another mess. Um, But, you know, we try to like, even out the chores or even out the asks in a way that's not gender specific. And these aren't things that they're seeing in their homes, uh, in in their home, at least in our home, because my husband and I have, you know, very non-traditional roles. But I, my daughter was just taking an assessment test yesterday. And one of the questions was, um, you know, when she hit the speaker to play the question, it just says, what does mom do to clean the house? And of course, my So my spidey sense went up and I was like, what the fuck? And I went around and I looked at the screen and the, what it was, was a reading comprehension. So in the actual question, it's, or in the actual paragraph, it said, dad does the dishes and the cleaning, mom mows the lawn, you know, somebody else does something else in the house. So what does mom do to clean the house? And it's, and then it goes to, or to take care of the house and you choose mows the lawn. So it actually wasn't gender, you know, gender specific in that sense, but it got my alert up of like, oh my God, she's having another input from another source that is completely antithetical to everything I talk about. And then I realized that I was misinterpreting, but, you know, I think those are the types of things where we have to explain our whys. We have to understand that, you know, there's you having a tidy house may just be because you like that aesthetic, but it could also be an indication of something that, you know, some long ago trauma from a non-tidy house that really scarred you. And that's why it's important to you. Um, Eve Rodsky does a lot of work on this in her book, Fair Play, where she talks about the importance of garbage and what a trigger it is for her and how important it is that someone in her house takes out the garbage every day. And it's not about the garbage. It's about all that other stuff that helps. Like you're saying, you walk out of your office, you see a tidy house and your anxiety is reduced and yeah. your ability to re-enter that state of your day 
is supported. And that's why it's important to you. So I think, you know, I've just been on my soapbox here for a while, but like it's kind of getting to the why of this stuff, communicating it, and then somehow finding the ability to let it go sometimes. That's the hardest part for me. Yeah. Well, incredibly well said. And that conversation with Eve was such a good one. I really loved it. And she's another systems girl. So this is. (laughs) Yeah. She's one where I bought her book and then I was too emotionally tired to read it. Like I don't even have the energy to tackle. It's like one of those books that I buy and then I'm just not ready (laughs) like in a year or two. And I I love. Oh, go go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. I was gonna say, I love that you said that because that's the other thing that, you know, I look at this list of books under my bedside and I'm like, I'm not even trying to help myself. And it's like, no, I'm just not there yet. I'm not in that moment. That forgiveness is important. Yeah. And I'm not, sometimes I try to get out of the paradigm of fixing things and Mm -hmm. it's this balance between accepting exactly what is, as it is, as everybody is. And that creates so much love and affection in my home when I'm that way. I'm the more rigid person, you know, Michael's never telling me like, why haven't you tidied? Why haven't you picked up after yourself? And in fact, when he does, it's to make a point. And I'll say, oh my gosh, thank you for the reminder. I didn't hang my clothes. And he's like, I was joking. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, I'm just trying to tell you what you do to me. And I'm thinking, oh, I was actually glad that he told me what I was doing, where there was a pile that I wasn't seeing. But um, there's a book. It is so freaking good. Why talking is not enough. And it's basically that poking at a wound doesn't heal the wound. Sometimes we need to not talk. We just need to create a context of acceptance and appreciation. And then things magically start to shift and change anyway. And in fact, that's the only context that things ever do change. It's never going to come from this fixing energy. And I I just think it's a balance. Of course, there's always a balance, but I, sometimes I'm like, the more I read along these lines, sometimes it just makes me more angry and more frustrated and and more resentful. And so I kind of oscillate, I guess, between, between the two and I don't have a solution. And the one thing I will say is that of the women I know in these types of relationships, almost all the men are better in the kitchen. They're better cooks. Mm, the food yes, tastes better. My, my husband, I always joke. I'm like, I live in a restaurant. He's a chef. Like if I make a meal, it's functional and it feeds you. That's it. It just feeds you. If he makes there's one, no joy, <laughs> it's, it's just fine. It's fine. And if he, I, I get lucky if it's more than fine, I got lucky. And for him, it's like this most beautiful, thoughtful, nourishing, nurturing, beautifully plated masterpiece. And there's an example of a role shift as well, but one that supports us in such a new way. And, and I know so many men that are better around food than the women now. And that's just kind of funny. Like there's a, there's a shift that there's a positive version of all of this, that maybe the tidiness trend hasn't caught on. (laughs) Right. Right. Or if you think about, you know, what the effort is that actually goes into meal planning and, you know, securing the the essentials and getting it done each day it's actually a lot of work and you're like oh maybe that is equal to tidying I don't know my advantage and I will say we don't have kids and by the way this is a big reason I don't have kids yet is I'm just too intimidated by taking on the extra work Uh, and everyone can psychoanalyze me when you're done listening to this but that's a that's the truth if I'm being honest uh what I will say is that the fact that I don't get hungry first (laughs) This is one yeah. of the major ways I've been able to drop the ball is that I'm just not like, I don't eat breakfast. I'm not, I'm not the one that's hungry first. So it ends up by default. I realize there are certain things where if I just let the natural timeline play out, like he'll think about food once he's hungry and it's almost always going to be earlier in the day than me. You know, not always, doesn't always work out like that, but there are certain things that and I think she, I think Tiffany does say this and drop the ball, but if we can drop our timeline of when things have to happen or how they have to happen, they will often get done. It's just, we can relax around all the specifics about it. All the control. What that's worth. Yeah. 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 I totally, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, the arguments we've had about how sounds like we have a lot of recycling in our house and we do, but you know, who's going to take the recycling down and when it's just not, it's not fruitful for anybody. Uh, listen, 
this has been such a fantastic conversation. I could talk to you literally for hours, as you know. Um, and I think for our listeners, I really encourage you to listen to Jenny's daily podcast, um, the Pivot Podcast, and you can certainly reach out to her. She's given tons of resources here for her site, as well as uh, books that have helped to shape uh, your your perspective and your approach. So I just thank you for all of the resources and all of the insights and all of the work that you do. Bethany, thank you so much. I agree. This is so fun. I could talk to you all day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this work and leading these conversations. And if you're a breadwinning woman and you're listening, I bow to you and you're not alone. And I thank you as well for being you. And I, I'm just, I feel such a, uh, camaraderie, I guess, with this group, but I'm just, there's really so little out there on this topic. So thank you again, Bethany. And if you want more resources, listeners, you can go to pivotmethod.com and the podcast, just search for Pivot with Jenny Blake, because there are many Pivot podcasts out there now. Oh, interesting. Okay. Good to know. Pivot with Jenny Blake will give you the insights and the candor and the non-overwhelming advice that we've come to expect from you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Bethany. you. Don't forget to jump over to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please leave a review to give us direct feedback and also to get the podcast in front of more eyes. It's very much appreciated. Do I keep your mind with light?